We're always, again, very thankful, so much so that we can come together at all appropriate opportunities and offer our worship unto the God of heaven. And certainly that's true again this evening as we have come together at this hour on this Sunday afternoon. As I stand before you tonight, I would expect that you perhaps noted in the bulletin this morning the title of the lesson tonight, as well as the title that's on the wall behind me, even as I speak to you at this moment. It is the case that there are a number of questions that are frequently asked about the Holy Spirit because in many ways He is perceived as mysterious. He's perceived as, again, in many ways, a very unusual kind of being. But you and I will do a couple of things tonight over the course of this lesson, one of which is to hopefully remove a bit of that mystery, but then the lion's share, if you will, of the lesson to address the question on the wall. Exactly how does the Spirit motivate? How does He influence the lives of those whom He wishes to influence? I certainly do not need to remind you that there's a great deal of, shall we say, misgiving about that. And a lot of differences of opinion in the religious world today. There are many who feel as if the Spirit directly and personally leads this person, him or her, to do that which the Spirit would wish him or her to do. In fact, there are many in the religious world who exactly feel this way. Tonight, why don't we give some careful attention, using the Word of God as our guide, and appreciate a series of patterns, followed by, of course, a rather powerful conclusion. As we do all of that, this opening slide is merely a very minor introduction, and a gentle one at that. I would again offer you the thought, how does the Spirit... The Holy Spirit of God influenced the lives of people. How does He get them to do what He wants them to do? That's a great question, and it is one that we shall discuss this evening. To do that, though, why don't we, as I mentioned a moment ago, cast at least a bit of a spotlight on the Godhead and see how it is the Holy Spirit fits into that discussion. As we do that, would you perhaps come with me first to that powerful set of passages, observing the following. The Holy Spirit is a divine person. We ought not think of the Holy Spirit as merely a force, as merely an influence, as merely a power. You're probably well aware that there are some individuals who in their writings have cataloged the Spirit is, He's a bit like magnetism. <laughs> he exerts force. Excuse me? I would hate to think that our appreciation of the Holy Spirit is no deeper than likening Him to something like magnetism. He is far different than that. Furthermore, you may begin to take an observation with me about this. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, we have the appearance of a word that may in fact be a strong guide for us over the next couple of moments. It says, In Him, which is Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now you'll notice in the inspired passage presented, there is the usage of the word Godhead. Maybe at first sight, that is worthy of some reflection. On the slide, I've asked you to notice, that word clearly consists of the three letters God, followed by the word head. But in the original language, note with me that word head in essence, identifies what we might call Godhood. 
and seen that way, that's very familiar to many other words which you and I frequently employ. For instance, as you think about fatherhood, or falsehood, or brotherhood, we're used to what the word hood means. It identifies a state, a condition, if you will, that those under discussion satisfy. So, if there's a gentleman who is among the community of fatherhood, the man's a father. He is a member of a state in which he identifies with that appreciation. What about falsehood? Falsehood identifies, again, a body of information which is false. Well, at this point, as you think about then Godhood, we're talking about that which makes God, God. We're discussing that which is the entity, the set of qualities, if you please, and those that possess those qualities. So when Paul wrote, "...in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily," Paul thus made reference to these entities, these beings that possess the attributes of God. As we continue that study in the Bible, we soon appreciate there are three such persons that are members of that Godhead. There's God the Father. There's God the Son. There's God the Spirit. All of them possessing that wonderful set of characteristics that make God, God. You may notice then on the slide, we certainly are left to note that early on in the sacred Word of God, we are led to appreciate that truth. In the opening verse in all of the book of God, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Perhaps the most well-known verse in all of Genesis, I suspect. Because it identifies His role commencing at the creation. But now the time has come. Look at one of the words appearing in that verse. In the beginning, God. That word God in the original language, perhaps should be noted, is plural. In other words, it identifies a multiplicity of beings that fall under the category and heading of God. Now, we aren't too surprised by that. Note the next verse. Let's continue. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved on the face of the waters. There was Spirit there. The Spirit of God was resident at that time. Thus, when you and I make reference to God, we notice the Spirit is one of the entities, the persons, if you will, that possesses the attributes of Godhood. It's no wonder on that slide. You might then notice that word that appears in that text in Genesis 1 occurs many, many times in the plural in the Word of God. Over 1,170 times that word occurs in the Bible. And it's plural. So as you and I think about God, aren't we led to appreciate then that there are multiple beings that have those attributes? And thankfully the Word of God identifies who they are. There is but three. You'll notice then as we continue that set of considerations, at this point the fact we've identified three might lead us to suspect, so does that mean there's one God? Absolutely not. The reason we say that is because the Word of God characterizes and highlights it precisely that way. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 begins by saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one. He's one. 
that's one of the things that made the ancient Hebrew people rather unique. You and I know that there were many peoples around the world who had multiplicities of gods. The Greek gods, the Roman gods, just to mention a few. Don't we remember the Egyptian gods detailed for us to some extent in the book of Exodus? But yet Israel had one God. Now that has stretched the minds, no doubt, of many of us to think, here are three entities that possess the attributes of God, and yet they're one. There's one God. You may notice on the slide some of the identifying verses. One of them is the Father. There is God the Father. He is one. Didn't Paul, writing to the Ephesians, make that point? There is one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Ephesians 4 verse 6. One. The Father is, of course, mentioned in a number of verses. In John 20 verse 17, Jesus prayed to the Father and highlighted the fact that He's one. Aren't we reminded in Romans 1 7, when Paul made the identification early to the church at Rome about the oneness and the power of the Father. But not only is there the Father, there's the Son. S-O-N. How sweet it is that the Word of God helps us appreciate that. The Son also is God. I say that because of verses such as these. In 1 John chapter 5, verse number 20, allow me to read what the inspired Apostle John wrote about Jesus, who of course is the Son, but he had this to say about the nature of his being. 1 John chapter 5, verse number 20. And we know that the Son of God is come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This, and note this refers to Jesus, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus is expressly said to be God. We might also give this passing consideration on so many occasions. Wasn't it true that Jesus accepted worship from a variety of individuals while on earth? You perhaps can remember as many of them as quickly as I can. Folks who came to Him and worshipped Him, the text says. Not one time did Jesus ever correct them. Not one time did he ever say, I'm not worthy of worship. And you and I remember at one point he did say, only God is to be worshipped. That being true, that means Jesus must have been God. Maybe one final observation would be the line of consideration the Hebrew writer used in Hebrews chapter 1, wherein there the Hebrew writer proves that he's God in verses 8 and 9 by quoting from the Old Testament and asserting this could only have been said in reference to God. No wonder it's in light of those things. We have the Father, we have the Son, but we also encounter the Spirit. On that slide, of course, the Spirit too is one, Hebrew, uh, Ephesians chapter 4 tells us. But that unity, of course, is highlighted in a host of these passages in Matthew 3.16. On the occasion of our Master's baptism, you remember it, Jesus was in the water. God the Father from heaven spoke and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. 
But isn't it true? The Spirit was also present as He descended in the form of a dove and lighted on the Master as detailed for us in John the third chapter. Surely in light of those things, we appreciate the power and majesty of all three of them. But we might conclude that, si- that slide then by affirming that all three are divinity. All three possess the attributes of deity. And of course, one continuing conclusion then would be this. Let's begin to cast a bit more of a spotlight on the Spirit. Doing so by making this set of observations. Maybe you and I can appreciate the fact the Spirit is a divine personality. We should never refer to Him as an it. We should never refer to Him as, again, some mysterious force like electricity or magnetism or some other mere influence. He's a divine person. Listen to how Jesus stated it in John 16. Jesus Himself speaking, verse 13 said, How be it when He, the Spirit of truth, has come, He shall guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself, but rather that which He observeth, that shall He speak. Jesus made reference then to this divine person. Seven times in that verse He called Him He. Never it, never a thing, but a He. And not only that, notice, He speaks. He is able to do that which we expect a personality to do. And for that reason, I've listed just a handful of other things of which the Spirit is capable and that which the Spirit does. Look, He speaks not only in what the Master said, but later, what about the words of Paul to Timothy? The Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith giving heed to doctrines of devils and seducing spirits. 1 Timothy 4.1 The Spirit speaks. Are people capable of speaking? Are personalities capable of speaking? Absolutely. Rocks don't speak. Trees don't speak. Inanimate things don't speak. But not only the capacity of speaking. What about teaching? The Spirit teaches, doesn't He? May I call to your attention in mind 1 Corinthians 2, where we are expressly told in verses 13 and 14, the Spirit teaches us what is the mind of God. May I again say, personalities are capable of teaching and speaking. What about sending? Personalities are capable of volition and will to sin, and yet the Spirit does that too. In Acts 13, 4, He sent Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. The text says He did that. In the fourth case, the Spirit forbids. That is, He exercises His will to restrain others from doing that which they ought not do. He forbids. In Acts 16, He forbade Paul relative to one place of visitation on the second missionary journey. The Spirit didn't permit Paul to go there at that time. It would have to wait until the timing was right. In the fifth place, the Spirit loves. Romans 15 reminds us. He is thus one who exhibits that wonderful attribute which we understand that God has. For God is love, 1 John 4, 8. 
The Spirit, too, is said to be the one who manifests the matter of love. Maybe one final one, though it certainly is not exhaustive. You could list many more things of which the Spirit is capable. But the Spirit can be insulted. Can people be insulted? We know very well that rocks and trees and clouds and things like that cannot be insulted, though they may exert forces. May we never think of the Holy Spirit merely as some kind of inanimate force. The Spirit is capable of being insulted. Hebrews 10.29 reminds us that you can do despite to to the Spirit. And that phraseology means He can be insulted. May I suggest we close that slide then by merely reminding ourselves the Spirit is a divine person. What about then that major question we were asking of ourselves tonight? How does this Spirit influence? I freely confess that there are many who again are under the appreciation that the Spirit motivates individuals individually. He comes to them and He gives them a message that He doesn't give necessarily anybody else. Have you ever heard someone make the statement, the Spirit led me to do this? The Spirit called me to do that. The Spirit insisted to me that I, in fact, do this. The idea is easily heard, and quite often so, isn't it? How does the Spirit influence? As we begin that study that will take us through the remainder of our lesson this evening, it'll be our charge to allow the Word of God to lead us through this consideration. If the Word of God teaches that the Spirit does those things I just mentioned, then we, of course, in faith will accept it. But you and I will scrutinize and look with care about the nature of the Word of God. Let's begin like this. I've asked a couple of questions. So how did the Spirit influence people in days gone by? In Bible times, how did He do it? First thing we'll do is look at the Old Testament. In the days of the Old Testament, how did the Spirit influence? How did He share messages and how did He communicate? Did He drop His Word into the brains of people individually so that they could be influenced by what He wanted them to do and that they could rather immediately proceed to do it? We certainly would wish to know that. Why don't we thus begin by referring to 2 Chronicles 24? By the way, we're going to look at a number of examples one by one and merely let the text do the talking for us. We shall begin in 2 Chronicles 24. In the words of the chronicler, we encounter this particular statement. Again, verse number 20 of that chapter reads as follows, And the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, which stood above the people, Now, before I even finish the verse, notice we have a clear-cut case in which it says the Spirit of God came on this man named Zechariah. So, was it the case that, in fact, the Spirit placed the message of the Almighty God of heaven in the minds of these people of Zechariah's day so that they would instantly and immediately know what it was that God wished for them to appreciate? Let's read on which stood above the people, and said unto them, Thus saith God, Why transgress ye the commandments of the Lord, that ye cannot prosper? 
Because ye have forsaken the Lord, He hath also forsaken you. If you and I were to remind ourselves of the context, we appreciate God's people were not in the best of standing at this particular time. They had chosen to transgress God's will. They had chosen to turn their attention in ways different from where God wished them to be. So the question, was there a message that God wanted His people to hear? Well, of course there was. They were in sin. They needed to repent. It's easy to conclude that there was a message the God of heaven wanted them to know. So did God individually and personally, through the Spirit, send a message into the brains of these people so that each one would clearly and very swiftly know what was expected of them so that change could occur? The answer is no. The text again said, The Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the priest. And then in the verses that follow, the priest had to preach. The priest had to tell them what God wanted. Question, if things happen the way that we often are told today, why? Why didn't God just, through the Spirit, individually, prick the hearts of these people so that they would change? Good question. We notice God didn't do it that way. He chose to send them a preacher, in particular a priest, who would tell them what God wished them to know. And thus they then had to make a decision whether to obey it or not. Holding that example in mind, look at another one. What if we come to Ezekiel 11? This time, of course, we're interested to, dis to discuss and to study the same kind of question. Ezekiel 11 by this point, you and I realize the people of God had found themselves in captivity. They had chosen to again do differently than what God had expected of them. And because of their sin, they were taken into Babylonian captivity. Ezekiel labored among those captives while they were in captivity. And therefore, they were again were in rather dire straits. They were not in the best of conditions. They had been hauled away from Jerusalem. Many of them were now, of course, captive in one way or another. Question, did the God of heaven have a message that He wanted the people to hear? Well, of course He did. They needed to repent of the sins that had sent them into captivity, straighten up their act, and be ready again to serve the God of heaven in faithfulness. There was clearly a strong message. To Ezekiel 11 we go. So, in verse number 4, the text says, Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and said unto me, Speak, thus saith the Lord, thus have ye said, O house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. We are in almost an identical situation. Did God have a message He wanted this people to hear? Definitely. We notice the Spirit in verse 5 came on all of them individually. Did He bonk them on the head so that each one of them would know, well, I need to straighten up. I need to change. No. The Spirit of God came on Zechariah. I'm sorry, Ezekiel. And did you notice what the Spirit said in verse 5? Speak to them. God had a message for the people. He conveyed it through a preacher. 
He conveyed it through the nature of the Word of God. The Spirit didn't come on each of those people individually. The Spirit came on Ezekiel who was prompted to preach to them and to share with them the greatness of the message of God. That's twice now we've seen it. And the Spirit has equipped a preacher, equipped someone to proclaim the Word of God. The Spirit in neither case came on each person separately and individually. Example number three. Let's look at another one. This time in Nehemiah 9. Now, we are progressing further and further into the Old Testament. We started in Second Chronicles, and then chronologically later we came to Ezekiel, and now chronologically even later let's come to Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse number 30, the people by this point have already come back from Babylonian captivity. They have begun the rebuilding of the wall. And in Nehemiah 9, verse 30, this statement you and I encounter. Yet many years didst thou forbear them, and testifiest against them. Let's stop right there. Nehemiah, as he offers a great statement of prayer and declaration to God, he said, God, you were patient. You you forbeared with them for a long time. They acted with evil intent. They acted in disobedience, and yet you forbeared with them. But then he said, you testified against them by your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore gavest thou unto them into the hand of the people of the lands. Now Nehemiah makes the statement that God had a message He wanted the people to know, to hear, and to which He wanted their response. And yet how did the text say that message was sent? Did the Spirit equip each of them individually? Did He come upon them so that they could say, The Spirit called me to think this? to do this, to proceed here. That's not what Nehemiah said. Nehemiah said that God sent His message through the prophets. And the prophets shared that by proclamation, by declaration, and how often did the prophets say, Thus saith the Lord. Well, time and again, that kind of thing took place. Maybe a summary statement would be 2 Samuel 23, 2. David himself said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and His word was in my tongue. David, what did the Spirit do for you? He gave me words. Notice, David didn't say the Spirit influenced his brain to the point that He gave him suggestions. He led him to go here or there or somewhere else. But the Spirit equipped him with words. And David said... The Spirit of the Lord spake. This is how the Spirit spoke. The Spirit didn't speak any other way. Now those Old Testament examples no doubt are interesting and intriguing, and they begin to set a stage that we might wonder, is this a repeatable pattern? We need to go to the New Testament to find out. So as we turn the page into the New Testament, what do we discover about the influence of the Spirit? Again, does He do it similar to the way He did it in the Old Testament? Or does He act the way today we sometimes hear? That He comes and brings me a message that He didn't bring you. And He leads me to go here or think that or proceed there. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2. In the heart of the New Testament, we begin to look at this first example of this instance, and I have these listed for your consideration as well. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, 
that's a chapter exceedingly well known in that it's such a major chapter. It was the birthday of the church, wasn't it? But yet as you begin that, do you recall with me the way chapter 2 began? And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire that sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Pausing only for a short time at the conclusion of verse 4, we might now note this. Here were apostles, those selected individuals whom Jesus again had chosen, and the Spirit came on them. And you'll notice verse 4 says, equipping them to speak. Now we're going to learn later on, about 3,000 people cried, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Question, why didn't the Spirit prick their hearts individually and say, here's what you need to do. Why were the preachers even needed at all? Clearly, they were. The reason is the same as it had been in the Old Testament. God doesn't operate that way. He never has operated that way. The Spirit has never chosen to act that way. He equips those who have access to the Word of God in the days of old, the Spirit gave that word, and thus the expectation was that those priests and prophets would proclaim that word and people would react and respond by their own choice. As we come to the New Testament, these preachers were equipped. And beginning in verse number 14, Peter stood up with the other apostles and they preached what the Spirit gave them to preach. The Spirit didn't act individually on the hearts of those people. He equipped the preachers. Who preached that word? And did you notice in verse 37, their hearts were pricked, but the Spirit didn't do it directly. They were pricked by what the preachers preached. It says, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. They heard what those preachers proclaimed. May we never lose sight of the fact the Word of God is powerful. It's potent. In the language of Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. So on this day of Pentecost, wouldn't you think that if the Spirit acted individually and personally, this would have been an ideal time for it to have happened? For there were about 3,000 people who were anxious to do what God wanted, there were about 3,000 who were insistent upon doing that which the God of heaven commanded. But the Spirit did not prick their hearts individually. He did it through the majesty of the Word proclaimed. In Acts chapter 8, we encounter another example. This is the one Brother Dennis read earlier tonight. This again is another very powerful consideration. It is one that begs an immediate observation. You remember the same well. There was an eunuch from Ethiopia who had traveled a thousand miles one way to go worship. That by itself is impressive. That by itself, in fact, is almost remarkable to think about his conviction, his desire, his earnestness to travel that far in a chariot. He didn't ride an airplane. He didn't ride in a nice limousine. 
He didn't travel by way of coach, uh, somehow the characteristics of finery or luxury. He rode in a chariot. And yet we notice that as he was making his way back to his home, the following words are shared with you and me. Verse 28 says, This gentleman was returning and sitting in his chariot reading Isaiah the prophet. Then, verse 29 says, The Spirit said to Philip, Go near and join thyself to the chariot. It's clear from the verses that follow, this man had an honest heart. It was he who said, How can I understand what I'm reading unless somebody explains it to me? Philip quickly replied, as he explained to him Jesus in verse 35, and as he shared with him the wonderful message of truth, this man was clearly earnest and honest. Don't you find it amazing? The Spirit did not tell that man personally what to do. He didn't. He told Philip, you go to join yourself to chair. You tell him what to do. It has been consistent through all six examples we've noted so far. In every case, the Spirit equips those who proclaim, those who preach, those who set forward and declare the Word of God, and He leaves a decision to those who react and respond to what the preacher says. It happened again. Philip preached to that man. And then you and I notice what happened in verse 36. As they went on their way, they came to a certain water, and the eunuch said, Here's water. What does hinder me to be baptized? The Spirit didn't plant it in the man's heart. I need to be baptized, separate and apart from the Word. It was as Philip explained the Word, appreciating it, and preaching Jesus. That man came to understand the Lord commanded baptism, and he needed to be responsive to it. And it was he who stopped the preacher in mid-sermon and said, Look, there's water. I need to be baptized. Let's do it. If only there could be a greater appreciation of that methodology of the Spirit. The Spirit does not, despite the intent of some, come and individually influence the lives of people separate and apart from the grand message of the Word of God. He has never done it this way. What about example number 7? The next one will take us to 1 Corinthians 2.13. As Paul preached to the church in Corinth, what was it that he said about the activities of the Spirit and the way in which those activities were carried out? Without reading the fullness of the entire passage, could I just remind us of that 13th verse? Which things also we speak... Not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. As Paul addressed the Corinthian congregation, he reminded them, the Spirit teaches, and he does so in a way, that you and I might want to carefully observe. The ninth verse of this chapter is arguably one of the most misapplied verses in all the New Testament. Let me read it, and probably you will immediately think of ways in which you've heard this discussed. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, 
neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God had prepared for them that love Him. How often have you, have you heard that used to talk about heaven? That God has much grander things, much greater things that eye has never seen and ear never heard. Well, that sounds interesting, but may I say that's not what that verse teaches. He isn't talking about heaven. He isn't talking about the glorious abode resting beyond this earth. We know that because in the verses that follow, the very things that he's just referred to in verse 9, namely the things that I haven't seen and the things that ears never heard, he tells us what he's talking about. And it is in heaven. He specifically goes on to say in verses 10, 11, and 12, it's the things that have been revealed to us now through what the Spirit has revealed in His Word. Here's what eye has never seen. Here's what ear has never heard. It's the grandeur and the greatness of the richness of the truths that God has revealed by way of the Spirit in the Word. May we never underestimate the power and the beauty and the majesty of the Word because here Paul says there are things in here that eyes never seen and ears never heard. And yet they've been revealed to you and me now so that we can appreciate the greatness of them and they can draw us closer and nearer even to God. But did you notice all of that he then says is what the Spirit has revealed one more time, notice it's through the Word. The Spirit doesn't individually bonk you or me on the head and implant in us some kind of will to do this or that. But we know from the book what the Spirit wants us to do because He's told us. Surely in all of that, in all these examples, we're ready to draw a conclusion to our lesson tonight. The conclusion found in the opening chapter of Second Peter in verses 20 and 21 of that chapter, which happened to be the last two verses of that chapter, Peter, by inspired character writing, says, these things about the Word of God. He talks first about this. The fact that, knowing this verse, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means, my friend, that I can't open this and say, well... The Spirit tells me through that verse this. But He may tell you through the same verse something else. Now that's just never going to happen. Because Peter just said, it is not of any private interpretation. What the Spirit says to me, He says to you. And what He says to you, He says to me. Because the Word is the same. And then the next verse, He elaborates like this. After asserting in that 20th verse... No private interpretation, he says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. The Spirit, you see, guided those writers to write down this, to put it in written form for all to appreciate. And in so doing, the Spirit has spoken. This is His means of communication. This is His means of exerting influence. This is how it's done. So, you and I then have learned tonight through a host of examples, and many, many more could have been listed. But time has allowed us to look at these eight. As we've looked at every one of them, we have found the Spirit influences through the Word. Now, that Word is such that preachers and those who declare and proclaim it can utilize that Word and be faithful to it 
And through that spoken word, the Spirit influences the hearts and minds of people, but He does not do it separate from that. He doesn't do it in a way that's individualized and personal. The concluding statement of this lesson tonight then is this one. Aren't we thankful for the power of the Word of God and what it teaches us about the behavior of the Spirit? The Spirit isn't nearly as mysterious as many would seemingly think. He is a divine personality, capable of so many things that you and I appreciate people can do, but of course He does it infinitely better. But as far as the way He influences, it is through the Word. No wonder then we must admire so greatly the Word of God. It is a book like no other. It is a book that contains the literal Word of God. And so tonight, have you and I been responsive to it? Are we faithful to it? As we close this lesson, it's perhaps time to ask ourselves that personal question. Have I followed what the Spirit has revealed? Have I been true to what the Spirit has commanded me? If that's not true for you tonight, Maybe it's because you've never become a Christian and how delighted we'd be to assist you this evening in your response to what the Spirit has said. You need to believe in the Lord as the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. We know that because the Spirit's revealed it. If you have known that way of life and you haven't been faithful to it, you have not been true to what the Spirit has revealed. Come back to your first love. The Spirit is waiting, and so too are the Father and the Son, anxious for your faithfulness and ready to welcome you home. If tonight we could be of help, we would be in a position to do that with great excitement and joy, even while together we stand and while we sing.